especially high risk for several rare but potentially fatal diseases caused by ticks. These include Lyme disease and Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, among others. If you or your children have been in wooded areas, make sure to conduct a thorough body search for ticks. If you notice a bullseye rash or experience unexplained joint or muscle aches, facial paralysis, fever or chills, consult your doctor. To learn more about how to reduce the risk of tick-borne illnesses, visit pestworld.org. The ASUCD Pantry, YOLO Food Bank, and AccuCompass are proud to present the Eat Well YOLO Food Distribution. Every Tuesday from 2 to 4 p.m., you'll be able to grab free groceries such as dairy, produce, canned foods, and more. Everyone is welcome, including non-students as well. Come by to the south end of the MU, next to the quad, with an approved daily symptom survey and your own grocery bags. The assortment of groceries can vary week to week, so be sure to stop by to see what's available. We can't wait to see you on Tuesdays from 2 to 4 p.m. in front of the fountain by the MU.
Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back. Just a quick disclaimer before we head into our content. The following views presented in this hour do not reflect the views of KDVS, KDVS sponsors, or the University of California. Welcome to No Police Radio. You can hear us every other week discussing all things abolition, from tuition to the prison industrial complex, everything that has to go to make way for a free university. We'll feature conversations with guest organizers, abolitionist scholars, and people who have taken part in the university's radical history, all with an eye towards how we get free. This is DJ Local Bag. I am here with uh, a brand new host here on No Police Radio. I'm super excited. Um, but yeah, do you want to introduce yourself? Um, hello, I'm Roger, a uh, local UC Davis student. Yeah, welcome, Roger. Thanks for joining us in the studio today. Super excited. I think we're both super excited yeah, for the show. Yeah, I'm really excited. I was, <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to speak for you, but I don't know. I could. The excitement is palpable, honestly. Um, but yeah, do you want to go into what's coming up this hour? Yeah. So our feature this week is an interview with two members of the UC San Diego community. Um, so basically on May 5th, a group of UAW affiliates walked on stage at a UC San Diego awards ceremony and disrupted the scheduled events. Why, you ask? They're bringing to light the failings of the university administration to uphold the union contract they brokered as a result of the UAW strike of 2022. As a result of this demonstration, 67 graduate students are now facing disciplinary action. Um, some of the charges brought forth include physical assault, conduct that threatens the health or safety of any person, and obstruction or disruption of teaching, research administration, disciplinary procedures, or other university activities. Stay away from the stores where the remedies 
That was Codine by Buffy St. Marie. Uh, and yeah, just you want to give the introduction to our guest today? Yeah, so today we're talking to um, Alex and Wendy. Alex is a graduate student researcher studying cancer genomics at UC San Diego and a member of the UAW Local 2865 Academic Workers Union. Wendy is, facul uh, is a faculty member at UC San Diego and part of Executive Board of San Diego Faculty Association that endorsed the Faculty Solidarity Letter that now has 299 signatures. Over 100 of these are from UCSD, calling for the withdrawal of the charges. Alex and Wendy, can you hear us okay? We can. Thanks so much for having us. Oh my goodness, it's working. Last time we <laughs> had technical difficulties, so I'm really happy that it works this time. But yeah, thank you guys so much for being here. How are, how are you guys doing today? Doing all right, hanging in there, uh, getting through another week of, um, of uh, the beginnings of conduct proceedings for, for everyone in our group. Um, but, you know, we're uh, remaining positive. Right, right, right. Thank you so much. Um, thanks so much for being here again. I know it must be a really difficult time for you both um, and for everyone on the UC San Diego campus that's feeling the effects of this. Um, but for some of the... Um, for some of our viewers who might not be aware of um, aware of what the UAW experienced and went through and fought for last fall, um, could one of you summarize the situation for our viewers? Um, like, give a brief summary on what the strike was about. Um, and yeah. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So uh, the strike last fall, uh, potentially one of the largest in terms of um, academic worker organizing in, in the U.S. at least, um, was a, a combined strike of four uh, different bargaining units, the uh, TAs, or, or also known as ASEs, um, the newly formed uh, Student Researcher uh, Union, which is now part of 2865, mm -hmm. and, and, and that's uh, the, the group that I'm part of. Um, and then we also had postdocs as well as academic researchers under UAW 5810 who were, were part of that work stoppage as well. So around 48,000 people total, and, and this was um, in response to, um, you know, not getting really any significant movement at all in the negotiations at that time uh, from the university for any of the bargaining units, um, and the university just really not um, being realistic in terms of what um, academic workers 
uh, graduate students and postdocs need in terms of uh, being able to deal with the cost of living in California and, and you know, uh, respectful work environments as well was another really big part of uh, the student researcher organization as this was actually our first, uh, first ever union contract. Um, so that was a five-week strike uh, where we ratified agreements. Um, all, all four units are ratified by uh, about the end of the quarter, a little bit into winter break. Um, and since that time, um, at least certainly uh, for the graduate student uh, uh, bargaining units, the TAs and the student researchers, um, has been a, a very arduous process in terms of actually getting the university to implement this contract. So a number of the things, some very critical things, in fact, that were promised at the bargaining table and were written into the contract still are not in place at this point in time. Mm -hmm. Uh, many student researchers are uh, well north of $2,000 in lost wages total because of this, things that should have been in place in December, which are still not in place now. And I'm happy to go through, you know, some of the details of specifically kind of what those things are. But that is really, um, you know, kind of in a nutshell what motivated us to engage in this uh, peaceful protest action, um, uh, which took place in May um, as really a response to the fact that, um, University has not been engaging in good faith with the formal processes laid out for resolving contract disputes, and we felt that it was a message that university leadership and uh, donors to the university needed to hear. Absolutely, thank you so much for highlighting all of that. And yes, we'll definitely go into um, we'll definitely go into some of the university's uh, malpractice in terms of um, how they are choosing to uphold or how they're not choosing to uphold the um, the fortified contract. That was a result of last um, last year's strike. So thank you for going into that. Um, did you want to ask the next question, Roger? Yeah. Um, so for Wendy, I was wondering, could you talk a little bit about the history of labor labor activism specifically at UC San Diego and like how last year's strike and the current charges sort of fit into that context? Sure. Um, that's a big question, but um, I'll, I'll just talk about kind of um, kind of my experience. So as um, I joined as a faculty member um, here in 2015, and, you know, at that time, you know, there's always been sort of um, graduate student workers around me who've been fighting within and outside of their union against labor exploitation, exorbitant rent, policing, migrant detention, and sort of all of these, all of these things that sort of accompany um, being part of a um, kind of settler colonial institution like the university. And I was welcomed into this world of grad organizers, um, some of whom are now faculty at other UCs, uh, who thought about labor activism um, through a lot of different strategies and models, um, even as we all kind of attended the marches and the rallies um, with the unions that represented UC workers like AFSCME, um, the UAW, and so on. Um, we are not unionized, and um, so as as, fac as uh, tenure track faculty members, and so um, a lot of us felt that it was sort of our job um, to um, show solidarity as much as we could. Um, where a lot of us got really directly involved in the academic labor organizing during my time uh, was when um, the wildcat strikes for COLA um, spread from UC San Diego to, I'm um, sorry, UC Santa Cruz, mm -hmm. UCSD. I don't know if David um, had that too. But um, when, when the grads voted um, kind of 
at the end of that to end the grade strike as organizing got really difficult with COVID. A lot of us turned um, to other things like engaging in mutual aid work and organizing mm -hmm. around cops off campus. And so it was only natural that those of us who were engaged in that work um, were going to support the most recent strike. And um, at the time, um, I was really sort of optimistic that some of the things that were initially on the table during that, those earlier years, um, like COLA, like defunding the police and other things that reflected um, an understanding that fighting for better wages and working conditions um, had to be tied to a broader critique mm -hmm. of the university as it exists today, um, were, were kind of, um, you know, on the table. And I think, you know, I mean, that's sort of a separate kind of conversation um, that may be kind of going beyond the parameters of this conversation. But I do think that, you know, this fight that um, the grads are engaged in to be allowed to engage in protests um, against one's working conditions is really part of, an important part of this longer history of labor activism and graduate student work organizing on this campus. Yeah. Right, thank you so much. I know that was a pretty loaded question, but I feel like you um, definitely answered it very, very succinctly. Um, and basically, you know, from what you what you said, I mean, this isn't, this isn't a new form of activism that just kind of sprung out, sprung up out of nowhere. This is a result of like, you know, one could say even decades of um, this is what, you know, this is what happens when you work and when you are, um, are learning in an institution, um, in an institution, in the colonial institution, such as the University of California, um, you kind of just uh, get to really reckon with all of the um, all of the different material conditions that continue to manifest around and, you know, the conditions that continue to not work for um, most, if not all of the students. Um, so thank you for thank you for speaking on that. And yeah, we did have um, uh, there was a lot of solidarity on the UC Davis campus um, in like during during the Wildcat strikes. Um, and and yeah, we do talk a lot about that um, uh, on this on this show in particular on No Police Radio. So um, this is definitely part of a, a broader conversation and we don't really have to touch on every topic in every show, but it is good to have like that little summary to just kind of connect all of the um, past conversations that we've had. So thank you for that again. Um, and for whoever is up for answering this question, um, I think it would be really helpful for our audience to hear um, a little more about why universities um, think that it's so important to squash labor activism in particular. Um, maybe talk a little bit about what universities have to gain for themselves by um, squashing labor activism and um, what uh, forms of repression we've kind of seen or what you guys have seen in particular uh, in the past, I would say in the past year. Sure, I can certainly speak about that from, um, from the perspective of, of graduate students. Um, I think um, anyone who's ever attended a university knows that um, a lot, so much of the instruction and, and also so much of the research is um, uh, really kind of, the, the graduate students are really kind of almost the, the atomic worker of, 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 of pushing a lot of that forward, um, of, of doing, you know, a lot of the grading, a lot of the, um, you know, the actual experimental work day-to-day -day in research laboratories um, and, and teaching in terms of office hours discussion sections being available to students as a, as a point of contact, um, especially in larger classes. And to date, um, universities have really been able to get away with um, a kind of, uh, which I think happens in, you've seen this in, in, in other fields too, like with, um, you know, more creative uh, pursuits where there's now unionizing and very topical with like the writer strike, for example, but 
this notion that, well, you're doing, this is your passion and you should be willing to, you know, live to work for pennies because, you know, it's such a privilege to work for us. Um, and that's been tolerated or in some form for a long time. And I think our, our sort of modern graduate student worker movement is saying, um, you know, that we are, you know, workers the same as any other. Our work provides value. Grants have been awarded based on our research and tuition is paid based on our teaching. And that we deserve, while we are providing, you know, this value to the university, the least it owes us is enough compensation for, for a dignified and secure uh, life as we, you know, work towards this. So the university is, is starting to feel that the age of being able to um, compensate it at such a low level, considering the high degree of expertise and, 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 and the, you know, extraordinary number of hours that graduate students put in um, is, is going to potentially end at the same time that you know, the size of university administrations has been has been growing. And, and my experience uh, being here for, for several years is, is really that a lot of times these, these sort of bureaucratic systems kind of exist to sort of grow themselves or, or protect themselves. Um, and, and I feel that, you know, the university really does at a time, at times see us organizing for better working conditions and, and um, better compensation for our labor as, as a zero-sum game that they will lose you know, not only their source of, of um, uh, relatively cheap labor, but also their position of power within this system. Um, so that, that is really, um, I, I think, kind of the reason we, that we see responses that we have is, is they feel that, you know, their, their position in, in, you know, the university is being challenged, which it is. Yeah, um, and definitely what you said about how, like, the workers or the grad workers do a great job. Like, I know a lot of great grad students, and I know a lot of really bad admin. Um, we're going to go, we'll be right back after this music break.
All right, all right, we are back. Uh, that was Thinking Like That by Hope Sandoval and the Warm Inventions. And it's off their album, Through the Devil Softly. Uh, and Alex and Wendy, can you hear us okay? Yes, we can hear you. Thank you. Awesome, awesome. Thanks again for joining us. Um, but yeah, so uh, again, like thanks for, you know, talking about uh, a little more on um, why the universities uh, tend to squash labor activism as it comes out and also um, like what brought the uh what brought the UA, uh, UAW members and um the graduate students of the UC system to um to this point in history um I think I don't know the last couple of questions and answers definitely gave a great summary of like what brought us to this point in particular um but yeah speaking of the um I think we gave a little bit of a introduction onto what exactly is going on but um basically some uh like some graduate students are being um, pressed with some charges through the uh, through the like by the university um, as a result of a demonstration that happened on May fifth. Um, do you want to go into um, Do you want to go into some of the charges and maybe explain a little bit on um, you know why certain charges seem exaggerated and unfounded and um, I don't know if you wanted to talk a little bit more about the implications of accusing political protesters of violence and what that means in the larger context of um, what that means in the larger context of direct action. Sure, I'd be happy to. So um, the um, process for this has, has been um, quite strange, and it's, it's one we've had to try to understand as we've gone along. Um, every single person initially charged, which was about 59, um, have the exact same three charges, which are uh, first, a charge of physical assault, secondly, a charge of conduct that threatens health or safety, and finally, a charge of disrupting university operations. Um, the uh, first two that I listed are really both of the most severe, as well as the ones that make the least sense, um, which, again, we, you know, are, are you know, our position is that this was a collective labor action in response to an unfair labor practice and that applying the student conduct um, uh, process at all is, is not appropriate in, in this instance. Um, but I think everyone involved was really blindsided by this, this allegation that 59 of us bear some sort of responsibility for an incident of, of physical assault. And the only thing that they've been able to sort of concretely tell us as, as to why that's been done is that um, uh, someone may or may not have, uh, according to whatever witness testimony they have, bumped into the chancellor while uh, people were giving speeches from the stage. Um, they won't even say um, whether this was intentional or not, um, at least in terms of whatever their witnesses told them. They're, they're saying that even an unintentional um, brief uh, physical contact that wasn't even close to something that could cause harm, even if that did happen, which um, no one I've talked to and certainly not myself witnessed that. Um, they're saying that even that could amount to physical assault, where the minimum char the minimum sanction for that in the recommended guidelines according to university policy is a one-year suspension, uh, with the maximum sanction being permanent dismissal from the university. Um, so uh, you're right. It is, it's, a, it's a very extreme situation that where the charges are really totally removed from any of the facts as I know them, any of 
the events as I witnessed them and, and any of the events as anyone else witnessed them, including people who were um, present but not part of our group. Um, so in terms of the implications for, um, for, for protests and for labor, um, it, it seems clear that um, I think the university has two goals. One, it was embarrassed um, by our actions. Um, it was done at a, a, a relatively formal event um, in front of donors, and including um, some relatively uh, politically influential people in the county of San Diego. Mm -hmm. And I think they are trying to respond in a, a sort of political fashion that they feel that, you know, past union protests took place at, you know, places on campus where really only other students and professors might have seen them walking by and, and that wasn't something that embarrassed the university. But, but I really feel like this was something where they feel that they were, you know, this, this, this um, loud group of students in front of the donors is something that goes a bridge too far for them. And that is why they've chose to respond in, in a way that really doesn't make a lot of sense and is not at all proportional to what occurred. Um, but also, I think that they do want to try to push this angle of, of, and, and it's something that we come out back to over and over again as graduate student workers is, is just that, that we're graduate students and workers. And we're students when it's convenient for the university and we're workers when it's convenient for mm -hmm. the university. Um, and, 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 you know, that, that, that is what they're planning and what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, well, sure, the union has all this stuff in their contract um, about discipline and dismissal, about having union representatives present at any kind of disciplinary meeting, um, and, and all of these sorts of standard um, kind of bylaws, but they've decided um, for uh, you know, their kind of arbitrary decision-making that we were wearing our student hat that day. And mm -hmm. so none of this is going to sort of, while the union is certainly very active in, in, in helping us defend ourselves, they are not a formal party to this process because this is a, a student conduct process. Um, and, and that's evidence in terms of reading this charging document, which is um, full of very minute details that aren't particularly relevant, such as the distance that people had to fly to attend this event. Um, it's full of allegations, which are not actually based on witness testimony. For example, they said someone told us they were worried about how elderly people would react. Mm -hmm. What that tells me is an elderly person did not say they felt afraid but that someone said they were wondering if elderly people felt afraid, and that's a basis for saying that there was a health and safety threat. But even among all of that specul like rampant speculation in this report, there is no mention of our demand. There's no mention that we are part of a union. There's, uh, they did mention that we spoke with a, uh, someone from the University of the President who came out to talk to us and um, you know, asked you know, if we could uh, tell them about their demands so they could relay them, but there's no mention of what those demands were. And that's because if they acknowledge that this was a labor action, they would be throwing this whole process into doubt, and they can't do that. So that really is them trying to push a kind of a precedent in terms of, um, you know, they're, they're, they're workers when we need them to work, but when they're, you know, there's anything we don't like, now they're students with no employee rights whatsoever. Um, and, and that is uh, something that I think they see as something they want to test, certainly before the contract expire in about a year and a half. Um, and, and that is really, I think, where this is dangerous because the, the allegations they're making about us here could apply to any protest, um, any group of people yelling um, or giving chants or, or, or maybe 
um, kind of marching on a street or, you know, anyone could say, well, this looks intimidating. I'm frightened by these, uh, these loud people. So at this point, if, if, that, if that is sufficient to say that we've threatened health and safety, what protest is allowed at, you know, in the university community? Uh, not, not many, as far as I can tell. Right. No, that was, <laughs> wow, I couldn't have, I, I don't know, that was just um, a really, again, a really succinct answer, and it answered every part of the question, and, like, I, what really stuck to me was just, like, you know, in the beginning, when you were just um, basically saying that, like, the university, like, you have your own truth, and you know your own truth, and, you know, the events as you know them, and the facts as you know them, and the university just kind of took that and um, cast it aside, and is not even, um, and isn't even kind of recognizing that it is a truth and it is your truth and it is the truth of the workers and the people who were there um but yeah and it's also really interesting to say that like in this situation it is really convenient for you guys to be students because um you know we'll talk a little bit more about uh like the student like the sja conduct and like how that proceeding kind of goes like we'll talk more about that towards the end but um basically it is a lot of it is just um internal decision making like it's not through like you said, like there is no union representative in these proceedings. Um, in the initial proceedings, you don't even you're not even allowed to like have an attorney present. So it's just really interesting that they do want to keep this very internal so they can kind of make their own decisions without any repercussions and um, basically like choose their own quote unquote jury as well. Um, so that is just that's really interesting to hear their response to all of that. Um, and yeah, do you want to go into the next question, Roger? Yeah, I also really like that the last part of that you were saying, like, what protests would they allow? Um, in UC Davis, we have an example of, like, what kind of protests they will allow um, under these rules. Because on the other side of this coin, like, we've talked about this on No Police Radio before. Specifically at UC Davis, they there's been, like, this weaponized free speech arguments to justify having police protect a violent right-wing speaker here not too long ago. Um, so could you go further into detail about this free speech issue in relation to the current situation like why is it so important to be able to engage in these kinds of activities and why the university is so willing to protect uh these conservative voices but not yours yeah i mean that's that, that, i think there are a lot of a lot of um sources on that i'll kind of comment briefly and then maybe wendy if you have any thoughts on that question you can also share, but I think, I mean, first, it certainly, I think, um, I think it gets back to a little bit of what I was saying before the break about, um, you know, power dynamics here, um, that, um, that as the more, you know, the union is able to establish better working conditions, the, the sort of less authority and ability to make arbitrary decisions that, that admin feel that they have, and, and, and there's just this, um, Maybe even subconscious in cases, but just this drive that that an institution like this just has to sort of preserve itself, and certainly a um, you know as, as much threat as a conservative uh, sort of right wing voice like that poses to um, the student body, to 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 minorities, um, to LGBT people on campus, um, in terms of the kind of you know sentiments that they're going to try to bring and the people they're going to bring with them, um, they're certainly not posing that threat in general to the, you know, the decision makers of the university, people who sort of um, benefit from maintaining this kind of, you know, hierarchical structure that, that um, we operate under um, and, and the sort of total um, control over our working conditions. 
Um, so I, I think that is, is, is really, I think they see everything through a lens of um, what preserves the status quo and what doesn't. And, you know, I think there's certainly a sense of maybe not wanting or, or wanting to seem as if neutrality is, is sort of a, a higher ideal of the university, like if they were to, I don't actually know which, I'm sure I would recognize the name, but I don't recall which person that was at, at, at Davis, but I'm sure if that person had been not protected or not, not you know, given their, their uh, able to continue their event, then that would have started a whole, um, you know, debate in Fox News and gotten all sorts of unwanted attention. So it is really also about maintaining the status quo in terms of let's not, you know, do anything that might make anyone uh, angry at us or send us mean tweets on, on, on Twitter or, you know, do anything that makes our public relations department have to, you know, do anything over time for sure. Um, so, I mean, I, I think there's a few different kind of motivations that they have. And it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's really all about, you know, power and about maintaining certain, um, you know, images of what people think a university is supposed to be, or at least what people in America often think a university is supposed to be. Yeah, I totally get that about like not the university specifically, like admin not wanting to rock the boat. That was one of the things like uh, when Charlie Kirk and TPUSA were here is they were doing this whole thing of trying to threaten to sue. And after the event, they were specifically doing this thing towards Gary May where they're accusing Gary May of libel and stuff like that. So it makes sense that like admin is really concerned of this and they want to appear like this neutrality. Right. And then when these organizations make death threats against um, tenured faculty, then that doesn't really cause much alarm for them. But, um, you know, forbid, God forbid, like, you know, some donor pulls out and like, you know, or they get like Fox News, which they were already here, like regardless of whether or not the um, I don't know about Fox News specifically, but just other like right wing media channels, um, you know, just like inflammatory channels like that were, you know, they still did end up showing up and, um, you know making their own little narratives but um but yeah uh, Wendy did you have anything to add to that question um yeah I mean I think well first of all how you know it's so sick that like the university is you know accusing um these workers of physical assault and disruption when it's mm -hmm. the one that's creating or producing working conditions that are so unlivable right um for so many so I guess I just wanted to like say that, but also um, during, um, you know, that sort of those months, uh, those like early months of, of COVID and when we sort of switched our organizing um, from, you know, COLA to uh, Copstop campus, one of the things that I was doing was just kind of like, um, and a lot of us were talking about is like, okay, so what is going on with like the, the sort of um, financial like um, viability of the university and we sort of not stumbled upon, but we started to look at things like, you know, the UC's uh, like credit rating on these credit rating uh, like entities like Moody's. And one of the things that we saw there was that, you know, sort of it, they sort of explicitly laid out, well, here are the sort of keys to maintaining this extremely good credit rating um, which was, you know, things like, you know, pointing out that pensions um, were a huge, huge part of the cost um, that was, like, not good for the credit rating. Um, it was contingent upon maintaining stability on campuses, which meant suppressing um, labor activism and then continuing to increase enrollment 
And so these are the three things that were explicitly pointed out as things that needed to sort of happen in order for the university to maintain um, the UC to maintain its credit rating. And so what that means is that, you know, of course, you know, like resources are going to sort of be put into um, making sure that um, those things um, kind of continue, right, or sort of get better. And so for me, what that means is that, you know, um, there's always, you know, like the sort of fight against like policing, against um, sort of, um, you know, solidarity with labor activism, fights around housing, mm -hmm. um, maintaining some control over our teaching environment. All of these things are all kind of always going to be intertwined, I think. Um, and so I don't even know if I answered the question, but, um, you know, in terms of the reason why, you know, um, the university tends to, you know, kind of um, be okay with protecting the so-called First, First Amendment rights for certain groups of people and not mm -hmm. others, I think it also has to do with the fact that those folks are not threatening, you know, kind of this credit rating, this bottom line um, of, of the university. Right. Absolutely. Um, that is really interesting um, that y'all did that research and you came across like the specific um, like the specific factors that affect the university's credit rating, especially like uh, did, were, did you mention like worker pensions being a huge cost of like for the university that actually like does negatively affect their credit rating? It's sort of pointed out like, isn't it too bad? <laughs> that it's on the hook for this huge cost right 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 yeah. no that's really interesting um yeah and everything is always connected um this is like extremely off topic but um like AFSME is like the AFSME union um is recently like has recently like been calling for a divestment from Blackstone um because the university invested like three billion dollars of their worker pensions into Blackstone um so that is very interesting so instead of like having these pensions like go towards the workers they're like you know what let's actually go and invest them like without their consent so um that is you know just something to think about and every like you said everything is always connected in all of these um all of these like injustices that we're pointing out um they are all connected so um and yeah it's really interesting that um yeah i believe like alex was talking about this earlier that um they're taking this just like very strong disciplinary action against the um against the speakers on on may 5th because you know it was like this all of this like language um this inflammatory language towards the university being spoken to in front of uh people with um political like political and social capital like in that specific environment um like in san diego um but also where was i going with that i totally lost my train <laughs> oh my god anyways um but yeah, well, I think it, that Blackstone uh, part you brought up is, mm -hmm. is also really interesting because the timing of that announcement, it was actually just a couple of weeks after we ratified our contracts. Mm. Um, so the university had spent um, several months telling us that there was just absolutely nothing they could do um, about the cost of living um, in, in San Diego and, and you know, in, certainly not in any type of like cost of living adjustment, which was in our mm -hmm. initial demands. Um, and and Blackstone is one of the, um, I believe, in the top three, if not maybe top five, landlords, uh, landlord entities in San Diego County. Wow. Um, so certainly uh, they're going to play a role in 
the price dynamics for uh, rental housing for students over the next several years. So, and 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 that investment is really contingent on driving rents as much as possible because the university doesn't get a return on investment unless rents are high. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really is right after they dealt with this contract fight that we went through, they disregarded really everything we said, everything that caused graduate student unionization in the first place, which for most people, their number one issue is rent and, and housing mm-hmm. and cost of living, and basically guaranteed that this problem will get worse. Mm-hmm. And we're going to come to 2025, and I should be gone, thankfully. <laughs> um, but they're going to say, well, we just don't understand. We need to listen to our grads. We need to understand why they are you know, doing these things, you know, this, the kind of rhetoric that they always use mm-hmm. about how they promise to listen and, and that sort right. of thing. But it, it's all going to trace back to this. Um, right. They are they control more than any other institution in the state. Um, certainly not unilaterally, but but they share more responsibility than most. What housing looks like here, and and they shouldn't be surprised when graduate students are even more militant in terms of organizing and contract demands at the next strike. If this is the way that they're going to act in the short term, no, absolutely. No, absolutely. And like, you know, Blackstone being the largest commercial landlord in the world, like that rings many, many bells. Um, like the bells are very, very loud. So um, and yeah, they always say like, oh, I wonder who could have done this. And then it's like the fire that they set in the background, just completely engulfing exactly. everything. Um, but yeah, since we're on this topic, um, why can you talk a little bit more about why the organizers wanted to stage this action in the first place from your knowledge? Um, and, you know, this is really important for our listeners to know, like, you know, it's not only that the I'm sure it's not only that the ad like the UC San Diego administration is failing to uphold what is written in the contract, but it's definitely a result of years and continued actions by the university and like acting in continuous like actions of bad faith um, against grad student workers and just like against people who live in the community. Um, do you want to speak more on um, what? exactly prompted this action and what frustrations um, grad student workers have? Sure, I'd be happy to. So um, as I, as I uh, kind of alluded to earlier, in the six months since we ratified these contracts up until this point in time, um, we have been um, engaging in what's referred to in a, a collective bargaining agreement as the grievance process, um, which is essentially a way of litigating um, uh, contracts and, and disagreements between unions and, and workers and, and, and the administration or, or the employer. Um, and for anyone who's not, you know, in a union or hasn't had experience with this kind of thing in the past, it's sort of, it's kind of similar almost to how, uh, I guess, kind of courts work in America and a lot of other countries where the first, there's, a, there's steps in the process. And the first step is step one, which almost isn't really a real thing. It's just kind of, can you talk to your supervisor and solve this issue? And the issue usually doesn't exist unless the supervisor created it. So that step one is almost just kind of uh, a trivially, you know, you bypass it. Step two is where you talk to the actual um, labor relations office. And for us, that's just for our campus. So all these campus labor relations offices work independently from each other to a certain degree. Their operations are opaque in some ways, but they, they can manage these grievances at a campus level individually. And if you're the union still not happy with that resolution, you go to step three, which is the entire system. And then if you remain unhappy with what the system you see up to the president, LR says, uh, then you go, you decide to go to arbitration in front of the Public Employee Relations Board of California, where you have a pre-selected um, arbitrator as defined in a list of acceptable arbitrators in the contract. And 
you, you know, you go through this whole um, very, very, very long process of working out what kind of the, the contract says and that arbitrator's decision is kind of like the Supreme Court. That's just whatever that person says, like that's how this contract is going to work and that's how it has to be interpreted throughout the system. Um, we have, I would say, depending on, you know, what we define as individual grievances, we have several dozen um, that are at various stages of this process. The two, I would say, biggest ones um, are one for student researchers and one for teaching assistants. Um, the one for student researchers um, is, is based on our appointment percentages. So um, the kind of university's framework is that we are 50-50 workers and students, and you get paid for 50% or part-time work uh, for your research, and then the rest of that time you're a student not getting paid. It's not really how real life works, but that's just how their accounting works. The problem is for a lot of student researchers are actually appointed at less percentages than that for really arbitrary decisions that come down to budgetary issues and just kind of inertia of past practice. And uh, we have, um, as has been interpreted by other campuses throughout the state, um, that since this contract was ratified, campuses are not supposed to be doing that anymore. You can have a 25% researcher appointment or a 50% researcher appointment, but none of this, uh, I was at 41.74%, uh, which does not mean anything in terms of my hours worked, that my, my hourly work per week is not that specific. Um, but, and, and, and so labor relations offices at other campuses, I know Berkeley and I'm blanking on the other one, have actually said, yeah, this can't go on anymore. Everyone has to be 50%. UCSD is the only holdout. Um, and not only have they refused our grievance and sent it all the way up to the arbitration process, but they actually declined to respond. So we went through the whole process of writing this grievance up, meeting with them, you know, responding to all of their questions over the course of months. And the end of that was, we're not giving this a response. Um, so I don't really consider that to be, they're allowed to do that, and the outcome is really the same. It just goes on to the next step, but it's not a good faith engagement because they won't even explain their reasoning. I think it's because they can't ex articulate a reasoning, um, but they, whatever the reason, um, that is you know, kind of where that is. And that the arbitration process doesn't start until November, and then it will go for months and months and months after that. So it's possible that a large number of people who are SRs now will actually not get wage increases if we have to go all the way through arbitration to get this up until the next contract. Um, there are also similar issues going on for TAs as well, where there was an initiative on campus to make sure that no uh, graduate student um, worker makes less than 30 k a year uh, at UCSD, um, which a number of TAs are still at that level or below that level, um, even with the new contract. And what the university decided to do was once the contracts were ratified, they decided to kill that program, even though it had been years in the making. And people had already received written promises of that level of compensation. Mm -hmm. um, and their rationale was, well, there's this new bargaining agreement, so we can't do this anymore. Which the, the bargaining agreement has an entire article specifically explaining that the, the compensation is a lower bound in the contract. And the university can increase that compensation unilaterally any time that they want for any reason. Um, so that reason doesn't follow. And that grievance has also been similarly denied, but for even more um, annoying um, uh, kind of um, logistical grounds is that they've called it, um, because the first impact was supposed to start happening with that, where people were going to be losing funding over this summer. And when this, uh, TAs were told, look, this, is, this summer funding is not going to happen anymore, um, this grievance was filed, but labor relations told us it was a speculative grievance. Because even though people have been told you will definitely lose compensation, 
because they haven't actually lost it yet, that grievance is invalid. So we have to wait to the point where people are actually falling short on their paychecks and actually at the point where they're wondering about paying for rent and food before you can even begin the very laborious process of engaging with the labor relations office and waiting weeks and months for any kind of resolution to the issue. Um, and, and there's many other things, you know, they've ignored uh, requests for meetings from us. They've just kind of disregarded things. They've done things uh, in terms of like, you know, just logistical things like appointment letters very inconsistently. I have a 14% appointment and I'm still not entirely sure why, but that's just what the letter says. Um, so it's, it's really been this building frustration with the fact that we've been engaging in good faith with them for six months and we almost haven't really almost gotten anywhere. Um, we're really kind of almost at where we started in terms of getting a lot of these things from the contract implemented. And that's really by design is to create a bureaucracy that is so unresponsive and so complex that things, you know, they've, they, they, these things just never actually happen. And our only um, recourse is this maybe years long process. So that's what led a group of graduate students to sit down and, and see that this event was coming up and say, we have to escalate. Uh, we have to peacefully but assertively tell um, the university administrators and their, you know, relatively powerful friends that this kind of ignoring us and not engaging in good faith and making us jump through hoops only to refuse to engage at the very end is that's just not acceptable. It's not respectful, and it denies us um, a significant amount of compensation that we fought very hard to earn. Yeah, it sounds like administration, especially the university, has turned it almost into like a science of like ignoring grad students' concerns. Um, on that note, like I know grad students, they've been doing a lot of advocacy, a lot of great work. Um, could you, could one of you talk a little bit more about what support can look like from campus and community members who are not grad students? Um, so both on your campus and like across the UC. Like, uh, how, how, how do people get these charges dropped? Are there, like, different tactics? Yeah, I can explain kind of what, what we're asking for, and then maybe, Wendy, you can talk about the faculty organizing side. Um, for us right now, we're really just trying to make sure that, um, you know, people are aware of this, um, that people know this is going on. These kinds of things from the university work best for them in secrecy, where they can just kind of, um, you know, arbitrarily change the rules as they go or, you know, not have to worry about, you know, someone finding out about, you know, the way that, that things have been done. Um, and, and so we have a, we have a petition um, that uh, you can access at, um, it's, uh, the shortened link is bit.ly slash UCSD drop the charges. It's all one word there, lowercase after the slash. Um, and that will take you to a petition that will ask you, um, is if, even if you're not um, you know, a student or, or a, a, um, uh, an employee or anything like that, you can still sign as a community member. And uh, then, you know, we'll be able to, you know, first show the university that, like, look, we've got, you know, 2,000, almost 3,000 people who know about this, who care enough to sign this petition, and that you're, this isn't going to be something that's going to be done, you know, in quiet behind closed doors. Um, and then also, you know, as, as we need, as the need arises, there may be, um, you know, uh, rallies and other kinds of actions planned as we go forward. And that will help us, you know, kind of build a list of people who are, you know, willing to engage and, and willing to come out and, and support, um, you know, as, as, as we kind of move through this. Um, so certainly if you're interested, again, that's uh, bit.ly slash UCSD drop the charges. 
Um, if you're an alum of the university, um, our alumni office would love to hear from you. I think they always love to hear from people. Um, but if, if you want to say, you know, look, I, I heard about this on the news. I think this is crazy. I've seen the videos and I don't see this was here. And, you know, this is going to affect my decision to, you know, donate to the university because I feel this is wrong. Um, that's kind of stuff they actually can be more responsive to than you would think. Um, so if, if that's a position you're in, that, that's certainly like a very valuable um, uh, something that's very valuable that I think people can do. And, and Wendy, maybe you can talk about kind of on the, you know, like faculty um, uh, side of, of, of what you all have been working on. Sure. So, you know, we, we really want to just um, take the lead um, of the, the grads who um, are going through this. Uh, one of the things that um, a bunch of faculty did is um, we got together and wrote a letter um, that calls for um, the calls on the university to either you know kind of withdraw the charges or to dismiss them um, if they're already in process. And we also have affirmed um, the demands that are outlined in the letter that Alex just mentioned. Um, one thing quickly, I guess, is that um, I think it's really important for if, if like faculty are on the tenure track um, and are part of the academic senate is to understand this as a labor issue um, in addition to, um, you know, just thinking about how terrible it is that, um, you know, this office, right, is going to charge 67 people um, with something and we know that like, you know, the reason for doing that is to really try to get as much information as possible um, from from this, this group of, um, of workers and to create like a maximum kind of like um, confusion. But I think it's really important for us to think about it as an assault on all of our ability to engage in collective action around things that we believe are hurting our position as workers at this university. Um, I don't think the Senate as an entity should be afraid to take an oppositional stance against the administration. Uh, we are not administration, we are workers. Um, and it's, it's really, really important for us to start thinking about ourselves that way because you know we're going to be sort of um, put even more on the defensive as um, kind of you know the university really sort of centralizes um, its power um, even more than it already has. And so that's sort of from the, my sort of understanding of our place structurally within the university. But I think, you know, for grad workers who are being put through this process, I imagine that um, what they would most like, um, maybe, is um, for their direct supervisors, for department chairs to fight alongside them um, and to put something on the line, which is not a lot at all really, if you think about it, um, you know, instead of the, the kinds of responses that I've gotten are like, oh, well, there's nothing I can do, or oh, if I say something, um, I could make things worse. Well, <laughs> um, it's already bad. Um, and, um, you know, we, we have to really sort of think of ourselves collectively as well um, as, as sort of, um, you know, kind of people who have a lot, a lot of job security and you know we really need to be um just, just be willing to put at least a little bit of ourselves on the line because we are not going to be able to do what we do whether it's research or whether it's teaching um without um you know grad workers super 
Well, Alex, I don't know. If, is there anything else you want from us? <laughs> or need from us? <laughs> oh, in terms of, um, you know, what faculty can yeah. do, I mean, I, I guess I can kind of, I mean, in terms of, I mean, we already have, you know, a, a large number, uh, certainly, um, not least of which Wendy, of course, who's done an enormous amount of work to, to organize on the faculty side for this specific issue and, and a lot of in the past. And we're very, um, you know, grateful for that and the support we can get. I would say to any, any um, you know, faculty who, who might, you know, I'm not sure how many that would be, <laughs> uh, but who might hear this and maybe aren't necessarily have always been supportive of the union or, or really understanding of, of what we're doing. Um, you know, I, I had a, a discussion um, this past week with um, um, a, a professor in my department, um, I, and, and you know, I feel like um, we've, you know, we've always had a, a cordial relationship. But I think, you know, there's definitely a sense of um, that I'm on, this, you know, I'm doing these union things, and and as, uh, you know, when these contracts get ratified, that creates budget difficulties in the department. That's really hard to. That's 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 the reality of things. But the reason is not because. The union made demands. It's because the office of the president made a contract with us that it is not upholding. It is not providing its financial resources uh, to, to uphold its end of the deal, and it's relying on individual departments um, by having their budgets restricted to do the dirty work of of suppressing what grads are doing um, by basically not giving departments a choice. Uh, what I see, what we are doing, is we are trying to fund our departments. We are trying to, you know, with with um, our engagement both in, you know, kind of the formalized grievance process and then also through these, you know, this peaceful direct action we've been involved with, is we are trying to um, make it untenable for the Office of the President to ignore the fact that they signed a contract and they have to give each of our departments and each of our programs and each of our, um, uh, you know, courses that have TA slots um, the resources to implement that agreement. Um, so um, that's that's kind of um, what I would say. I think to, to you know to, to any faculty who hear this is we want uh, to help you fund your department. Um, but right now, certainly a number of us here in San Diego are, are in a pretty vulnerable position, and to be able to do that, because um, certainly a lot of us aren't uh, you know doing quite as much you know our time that we would normally spend. You know, we I, I'm in lab quite often, um, and the, time, the spare time that I used to have that went towards union organizing is now going towards defending myself from these charges. So mm -hmm. we, you know, anyone who is in a position to speak out who feels like the university is not, you know, provisioning their programs or their departments to be able to meet um, the needs of their students um, now would be, you know, a really, a really good time uh, to to support us. Um, it's never, never, never too late. Thank you so much. Um, thank you so much for all of that, and uh, we'll definitely, hopefully, be doing pretty wide distribution of this episode afterwards. Um, I think this is something really important, and obviously, it's a fight that is never ending, and it's a fight that hasn't ended, that didn't end after the five-week strike, and it's a fight that's still ongoing, um, especially in this upcoming year with uh, other unions on campus um, with their contracts expiring as well. So um, every every struggle is a labor struggle every labor struggle is a is a broader struggle um in the working class and in and, and yeah so thank you so much um thank you so much alex and wendy for being here and for taking the time um taking your time to be here um best of luck in um defending yourself against these insane charges um and we are supporting you all the way here from davis and um yeah we will continue to and we will continue to be supporting um in any way that we can and 
yeah, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate the time. Thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to speak. Um, you know, it, it, it's, uh, it, it, you know, means a lot. The, the, I would say the, I've, my anxiety was highest when this whole process first started and, mm -hmm. and there wasn't this sense of community outpouring that there has been in the intervening weeks. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that, I think, is really what is sustaining a lot of us. So, so we really appreciate it. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's important to stick together even across like, you know, from all the way across the state. And, you know, I checked the uh, I checked the petition today, um, like the faculty petition, and there's over like 2000 signatures now. So I'm assuming the numbers will just keep growing and growing. So um, just know that the Davis community stands with you and um, stands with you and your comrades and with um, just with all of the workers who are facing the um, the bad faith the bad faith practices of the university. So thank you again for being here and Godspeed. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good one. Take care. All right. <laughs> Thoughts? Thoughts? Question mark? Yeah, just it's crazy to see, like, especially what was said about how, like, everything is interconnected. It seems like it's really connected by, like, the same problem as, like, this police-like administration mm -hmm. right i mean especially i think on either the last episode or two episodes ago and um, we definitely talked about like the carceral the carceral language that's used in uc administration i mean like the like what's called like the student justice administration like that is probably the most like cop-like language you can use um for and like you know disciplinary action and all of these charges and it is a very like it's a very carceral centric system and a uh, system of responses in order to, um, you know, use in order to keep students uh, and workers in line, I guess. So um, it's really frustrating to see, but also very um, clarifying to see that it is all connected. And sometimes I feel like I'm like that, that meme of the guy who's just like in front of the board <laughs> with all of the thumbtacks and the lines pointing to all the things and like, yeah, it does sound really insane sometimes when you think about how all of these issues are connected, like, you know, the class struggle and um, the labor struggle and like the struggle against the struggle for um, abolition. Like these are all connected, though, like everything is always connected. Um, but yeah, I think with that, we're going to go and listen to some public enemy. Um, we're going to listen to some public enemy. This is um, well, public enemy and anthrax. And the song is called Bring the Noise. Come on now, they're gonna have to wait till we get it right. Radio stations like questioning their blackness, they 
KDVS, we're searching for a few public affairs hosts. Imagine being on the air talking with underrepresented peoples, or educating the public on pressing issues. In case you were wondering, anyone is eligible. Just contact us at publicaffairs at kdvs.org. Do you know of someone that has a problem of self-confidence and or ego-related dysfunctions? Perhaps they're not cool enough at parties. Hi, I'm Alfonso. What's your major? Maybe they dress funny. Ina, I just love your overalls. They look great with your high-top sneakers. Or do they do dumb things with their bodies? You will be queen. And now, here's my imitation of a chicken. Nine out of ten doctors prescribe listening to KDVS in Davis, 90.3 FM, the music to become socially graceful. Last year, 165 people in Sacramento County took their own lives. For every one suicide, six people on average are left behind to wonder why. Depression and feeling alone often lead people to crisis. If you or anyone you know has any of these signs, please call Suicide Crisis Line toll-free at 1-800-SUICIDE. It could save a life, maybe even yours. Georgia 
Hi, this is Willie Nelson, and I need your help. Our marijuana laws are terribly unfair, and they make criminals out of law-abiding citizens. Nearly 2,000 Americans are arrested every day on marijuana charges, and we are unfairly destroying the lives and careers of hundreds of thousands of people simply because they smoke marijuana. These are not criminals. They are average citizens like you, good neighbors who work hard, raise families, pay taxes, and contribute to their communities. And it's time we stopped arresting responsible marijuana smokers. We need your help to end marijuana prohibition once and for all. It's the fair thing to do. For more information, contact Normal, the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. Call toll-free 888-67-NORML or visit their website at norml.org. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the National Sleep Foundation recommend that adults get between 7 to 9 hours of sleep each night. Studies show that getting consistent sleep can regulate mood and is related to learning and memory functions. The National Sleep Foundation recommends maintaining a regular bed and wake time schedule, exercising regularly, and avoiding caffeine close to bedtime. If you'd like more information and sleep tips, visit sleepfoundation.org. All right, all right, we are back. Uh, we just finished an interview with, um, we just finished an interview, oh my gosh, with Alex and Wendy from UC San Diego. Um, Alex is a graduate student and UAW member, and Wendy is a tenured faculty member. So um, if you weren't able to tune in for that interview, um, we'll be posting it on, we'll be posting the recording on the Cops Off Campus website, um, which you can do you know the website by any chance? That's okay. I'll, I guess we can find it online. And then um, if not, it's, you can always check out the, uh, the COC underscore Davis, COC underscore UC Davis, something like that. Oh, you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll get back with the, with the handles of everything um, on where y'all can find the website and the, um, and the subsequent recording. So yeah, um, I think we're going to just move on to our last segment our bad cop good project segment um roger do you want to talk about the bad cop yeah so <laughs> we got a really bad cop this time uh essentially the sja um that's what it's called at uc davis the office of uh student judicial affairs uh which was founded in 1976 um so like this is similar to like uc san diego the people that are currently that did the charges but at UC San Diego, it's called uh, Office of Student Conduct. But they all, all the UCs, they're all these, like, siblings of the, the administrators, like, extrajudicial courts. Um, so basically how these function is most of them, they go through an un informal process first, where, similar to the legal system, is where they sort of just say, like, oh, here's these big, like, punishments that we could do. But if you do like this plea deal and we resolve it right now, we don't have to go through this long formal process. So uh, roughly like 95% of cases are re resolved informally. And at least like 80% of those cases result in admission of guilt and or sanctions. Um, and like in it, if it does go to that formal level, uh, it's very extrajudicial. So it's heard by the campus judicial board, which is handpicked by the vice chancellor of student affairs. 
Um, they only need a preponderance of evidence, which means that you probably did it. It doesn't. It's not with beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm. And then that director, the director of SJA, is just able to choose whatever they want from those findings that the board finds. Right. And you did mention that there's like an appeals process, but the appeal goes right back the to the director who already made that decision, and which is just really interesting. Like you don't get heard by a, a jury of your peers or anything like that. It is a jury of one guy who sits in an office and can make decisions on the rest of your livelihood. And the uh, appeals process is just an ask for mercy at that point of yeah. the all-powerful administrators. Exactly. It's like, please reconsider. That's kind of all you can ask. Um, but yeah, bad. I feel like we, a, a lot, a lot of the times on this show, the bad cop just ends up being like Gary May or like one of the other administrators. So in this case, it is the Office of uh, Student Judicial Affairs. Um, I'm thinking, I'm like, maybe we should have like a board or something, like, uh, like just like highlight or like we should, I don't know, have like a meme template or something like this oh. year's <laughs> bad cop, uh, or this week's bad cop, um, is like whatever, and then we like fill in the blanks, um. I don't or, know. As I, you were saying earlier, the board where everyone's tying everything together because it's all intertwined. Exactly. And it's just yes. a meme board of how it all leads <laughs> back to Gary May. Exactly. Exactly. Um, he is the bad, the baddest cop. Um, but yeah. Um, and yeah. So uh, that was our bad cop. Um, I guess to end on a on a better note, um, we could talk about our good project, which is the Stop Cop City Week of Action. Um, so in the uh, in more promising news on Friday, the DeKalb County District Attorney um, announced the removal of her office um, from the prosecution of all current cases of domestic terrorism related to the Cop City movement. So they um, does that mean that they basically dropped the charges of domestic terrorism from all of the people who were arrested or the attorney general of the state is still right. prosecuting it, but the local county uh, okay. prosecutors know. So they're, they're running out of prosecutors because the prosecutors <laughs> are like, I'm not touching this. Right. This is not. Right. Exactly. They're like, I, I want to get reelected. Like, I'm not going to do that. Um, but, yeah, I think that is that is super promising. And hopefully um, hopefully the next prosecutor up makes that same decision. Um, but I think it's. Hopefully it's going to like trickle up in that way, um, that decision. But yeah, this comes uh, just as like the Stop Cop City and Defend Atlanta Forest movements um, head into another week of action from June 24th to July 1st. Um, so it started two days ago, but it's going till July 1st. Um, and the corporations and institutions responsible for the Cop City uh, project are not just in Atlanta. And this week of action calls on folks to act in solidarity to pressure these corporations and institutions especially the ones with branches in our cities um, across the United States. And um, if you're interested in learning more about how you can take part in this uh, week of action, uh, feel free to visit StopCopCitySolidarity.org. Again, that is StopCopCitySolidarity.org, all one word, uh, for an interactive map on the corporations funding the Cop City project across the country. Um, and I think it's really interesting. Like, I took a look at that map and, like, um, I don't know. It's just it's really interesting to see like where the money is coming from and like how much money is like going into this project and how much money from your community is going into that project. Um, but yeah, so we're hoping to um, again, we're hoping to archive this show on the COC web website, um, which we will provide uh, the Stop Cop City link there as well. Um, and yeah, do you have anything else to add on the good project? Yeah, um, just one last thing about the good project. Uh, uh, the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, which people may know, was uh, like the 
state basically arrested like three of their organizers for some bogus uh, charity fraud charges. They've just like today resumed their work in providing bail, jail, and legal support. So that's some great news that they're able to continue that support. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, and yeah, going back to the Cops uh, Off Campus uh, website, it is ucdcopsoffcampus.noblogs.org and you can find all of our um the ones that we were able to record um our past uh website recordings um on the right side so yeah it's going to be on the right side of the website if you're looking on um, your desktop so yeah that is uh, once again the website is ucdcopsoffcampus.noblogs.org if you're interested in listening to this recording um, and, you know, if you're interested in listening to past episodes, if you really liked this one. Um, and yeah, so we will, uh, I don't know if me and you specifically will be back in two weeks, but um, No Police Radio will be back um, in two weeks. So I believe that's going to be, I don't know the date, but what is two Mondays from now? July. The second week of July. The second week of July will be back. The 8th. Um, the 8th. July 8th. Um, if you are interested in tuning in, um, we'll be back on July 8th uh, with another episode of No Police Radio. Um, again, from 4.30 p.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, and yeah, this has been No Police Radio here on KDVS 90.3 FM. Uh, thanks, Roger, for joining. I had a lot of fun and um, we'll see y'all hopefully in two weeks. Um, and yeah, so peace out. Have a great rest of your Monday. Por la calle